The Lord Jesus Christ is so rich in glory that a single strand of prophecy would never do, would never properly prepare his people for his coming. So the Old Testament is positively jammed with types and pictures and foreshadowings of Christ, all of which speak of different facets of his person and work. I was so delighted last Sunday night after the service, a brother came to me and said, Carl, why are there so many types? And I said, because there are so many facets, just like you can watch a jeweler take a diamond and hold it up to the light and turn it and see all the angles and facets. That's what happens with a type. No single type could convey all the richness of Christ. A type is a literary feature that biblical authors use on purpose to show readers those historical events that foreshadow the life and work of Jesus. The marvelous Dutch theologian of 130 years ago, Herman Bovink, said, The Old Testament doesn't contain just a few isolated messianic texts. On the contrary, the entire Old Testament era, with its leading persons and events and offices and institutions and laws and ceremonies, is a pointer to and a movement toward the fulfillment in the New Testament in Christ. Now, if you've not been with us for the last 13 Sunday nights, we have been studying the types of the Old Testament. And tonight is our 14th type, and we're barely scratching the surface. So if you just joined us, I want you to get a quick tour of where we've been, some of the types we've seen. We began on week one with Adam the type of Jesus as the federal head of a race, one who acts for a whole race. In second week, we looked at the ark, the type of the one place to hide when the wrath of God is poured out. And then we saw Christ typified in the saga of Abraham and his son Isaac. Then we looked at Joseph, the rejected kinsman and future savior. Then we gazed upon the Passover lamb. <clears throat> then we studied the Old Testament prophet Jonah being swallowed by the great fish, and then coming out three days later, Jesus says this is the clearest type of our Lord in his resurrection. Then we looked at Samson as a type of Christ. Then at manna as a type of Christ, the bread of life. Then the rock that poured forth living water in the wilderness. And Paul identifies this type for us just very flatly and said the rock was Christ. And then you have the type of the high priest. And then Joshua, same name as Jesus, a victorious conqueror, perfectly keeping the law, at least outwardly, his willingness to stand alone, deliverer of sinners like Rahab. And our 12th type was the 12 sons, uh, the number 12, the 12 sons and tribes and apostles, which showed the fullness of God's people. Last week, we looked at the year of Jubilee, that Sabbath of Sabbaths, which occurred every 50 years bringing liberation and restoration. And tonight we'll look at the great King David and how he prepares Israel for their true king. Next week, Lord willing, for our final type, we'll look at Solomon as a picture of the Lord Jesus in his wisdom. Now, reminders about types. Types are always prophetic. They, they point towards something in the new covenant. And types are always divinely designed. They're never accidents. Like tonight, you're going to be tempted at least as we begin looking at some of the ways that David typifies Jesus to say, well, I just think that's a coincidence. Hasn't everyone had a crazy man throw spears at them in their living room? I think that's, that's just a coincidence. 
But when, by the time we get to the 25th correspondence, you think, I think there may be something to this business of, of David being a type of Christ. And that's what we're going to see once again tonight. Types are divinely designed, not accidents, but they are an integral part of the history of redemption. It's the Lord's sovereign rule over history and his exact knowledge of the future that makes typology possible. He knows what's to come, what persons and events are at the center of human history. And so the Lord is able to weave this glorious tapestry all through history of anticipations to teach his people long before events come to pass about Christ. And let me dig a tiny bit deeper than we have and answer the question, what is it that makes a type? Well, the first aspect, and we'll see that tonight, times 25. There must be a clear correspondence between this event, this person, this institution, and Jesus. <clears throat> In other words, a clear resemblance. Oftentimes, the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, do us the great favor of just telling us that something is a type. So, for example, in Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul writes, Adam was a type of him who was to come. And so we don't have to do any work. We just know that Adam is a type. But tonight, as I said, we'll see 25 points of correspondence at which David clearly foreshadows his greater son, Jesus. And the correspondence between David and the greater David, the type and the anti-type, is stunning. And then another aspect that makes a type a type is the principle of escalation. We'll see that tonight. Whatever the type does, David, the anti-type or the fulfillment, Jesus does better and greater. We'll see that over and over again. When you look at David, you think he's stunning until you see how it points to Jesus, who's even far greater. Our contention tonight is that David is a clear and distinct type of Christ, that Jesus is the prophesied son of David who will sit on his great-grandfather's throne and rule the world. David is a, a type, maybe even the principal type, of Christ in the Old Testament. And so by studying David, we learn much about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer and the study of whom should be endlessly delightful and all-consuming. Now, just a few reminders about the core components of David's life. David has, and this is no overstatement, top billing in the Bible. His name is mentioned 1,100 times in the Bible, and that's just getting started. He's the subject of over 70 chapters in the Bible from Samuel, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. And then on top of all that, he's the author of the vast majority of all the songs of the Bible in the Psalter. He's Israel's greatest king, and there's not even a close second. And he typifies what it is a king was to be and do. He most clearly pictured that office. And so think with me about what a king was supposed to be. Just If you just had a, could fit it on a small card, what is it that a king was to do? Well, first of all, he was to be a law-knowing and law-loving man. You remember in Deuteronomy 17, long before the office of king was, was instituted, uh, Commands were given for what the king was to do, and in Deuteronomy 17, we're told that the king was to take a copy of the Old Testament law of Genesis through Deuteronomy, and he was painstakingly in his own hand to pin his own copy and to keep that copy with him at all times, demonstrating that the king was deeply attached to the law. 
And so the king, first of all, had to be a man who loved and knew the law of God. Then he must care for the nation as a shepherd. The king must defend the nation from all who would harm the people of God. The king must exercise delegated authority from God righteously. In fact, our children on Wednesday nights know exactly what it is that makes a good king because they know the answer to Shorter Catechism 26. The question is asked, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? The answer comes back, Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now, after David dies, you need to recognize that there's a thousand-year gap, that David rules and reigns about a thousand B.C., and then the Lord Jesus comes onto the scene a thousand years later. But in the interim, even though there are all these types and shadows in the life of David itself, just in case any Israelite had missed the point, there are these signposts erected at the midpoint between 1000 BC and the, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ that said, hey, did you forget about David, the new David, the greater David? He's coming. And so let me show you just a couple of those indicators. Look at Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, written 500 years after David's death and 500 years before the birth of Christ, Ezekiel prophesies a coming king. And notice what he's called by Ezekiel. Remember, this is 500 years after the death of David. David's grave at that point, if you would have dug him up and exhumed him, he would have been dissolved by that point, just dust in his tomb. And it's 500 years before the incarnation of Christ. But look what Ezekiel prophesies in Ezekiel 34, verse 23 and 24. I will establish one shepherd over them, that is Israel, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, has spoken. And you're thinking, Carl, is this some sort of creepy reincarnation? No. But what this is stating, what the prophecy is that Israel is making, is one who will be so closely tied to David that when you think of David, you think of this one. And so you just call him David. He's the greater David. He's prophesied. And in case you didn't get around to reading Ezekiel, look at what Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 23. You have a very similar sort of prophecy in Jeremiah 23, written again 500 years after the death of David, 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 23, a prophecy of a coming king. Notice what we're told of him in Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch meaning something that comes out of the, the stump, the root of Jesse, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he'll be called the Lord our righteousness. And so just in case Israel forgot that David was the type and the picture of a righteous king. The Lord sprinkles in prophets at the midway point, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. But then it's when his birth occurs. 
that the scripture heats up in saying, this, this one who has come now, he is the heir of David. He's going to be so much like David, but infinitely better. For example, in Luke chapter 1, you remember what the angels declare of Jesus? That he will sit on the throne of his father, David. Well, I want to point out, as I said, about 25 points of correspondence. And again, you may be tempted after the first, second, third to say, ah, lucky guess here. But after about the 23rd or 24th, you might say, I get it. I see that David is meant to be this flashing road sign whenever I study David to say, in what way does this point towards the son of David, the greater one? And so let me make 25 points of correspondence with you. The first is a very simple one. David was born in Bethlehem. Of course, the word Bethlehem simply means house of bread. So, of course, when the greater David comes, the one who would say, I am the living bread who comes down out of heaven. I am the bread of life. Where else will the one who's the bread of life be born except in Bethlehem, in the house of bread? The second correspondence, we're told that David was from a, a lowly family and circumstances. Look at 1 Samuel 18, and you want to keep your Bible open somewhere near 1 Samuel 18. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 23, we hear the words, the confession of David out of his own lips about his economic status. And David tells us in 1 Samuel 18, 23, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And he's not just trying to dodge taxes here. This is a clear assessment of his family's economic situation. He's poor. He comes from a lower class family. And so isn't it amazing that when the greater David comes, the principle escalates. Jesus' family is so poor, they can only afford the poor offering that's established in Leviticus 12. And we see that in Luke 2.24. A third point of correspondence. David was a shepherd. We're told that repeatedly in 1 Samuel 16 and 17. That was his vocation before he moved to be Saul's harpist and then chief of staff. And of course, the principle has ex escalated all the more when Jesus stands and says that he is the good shepherd, the final shepherd, the ultimate shepherd. A fourth point of correspondence, David's appearance did not impress anybody. Look at 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. David is marching onto the battlefield to fight with Goliath. And we read this of David. 1 Samuel 17, verse 42. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth ruddy and good-looking. And he disdains him so much that Goliath shouts to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And so his, his um, appearance didn't impress anybody, especially on the battlefield. But we're told prophetically of Jesus in Isaiah 53 that he had zero attractiveness. He and David were similar in their appearance. Nobody was ever attracted to either one saying, Wow, what a, what a handsome attractive man. A fifth point of correspondence. David in 1 Samuel 16 was anointed for office, specifically for the kingship. 
And then in Matthew chapter 3, John, the Lord Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be anointed, just as his father David was, for his office, his office of priesthood. A sixth point of correspondence. David suffers unjustly from his kinsmen. His siblings think little of him. Listen to what they say to him when he comes to the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. Here comes David into the camp of, of Israel when they're staring at the, across the ravine at the Philistines and, and wishing somebody would go out and fight Goliath. And here comes David who shows up in camp. And his oldest brother, David's oldest brother Eliab, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and said, Why did you come down here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? And so his brothers disregard him. It's a perfect setup for the greater David. We read in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that his brothers think he's crazy and out of his head. It's not just his kinsmen. David's father-in-law wants to kill him and tries on several occasions. And this is exactly in keeping with Jesus' townspeople, the greater David, in Luke chapter 4, verse 28, when he comes home to Nazareth, they want to kill him. David writes about this frequently in the Psalms when he says, they hated me without a cause. <clears throat> a seventh point of correspondence. David's soul is greatly troubled. We read the Psalm about this in Psalm 6, so much so that he feels forsaken by God. But Jesus, we are told in John chapter 12, is even more troubled, and he is forsaken by God. And what we're starting to see is that every experience in David's life, every emotion is, is felt and experienced by Jesus except in a far escalated fashion. An eighth point of correspondence. When David was betrayed by one closest to him, his favorite son Absalom, he went up on the Mount of Olives weeping. Now listen to the specificity of this, of the type and the anti-type. When David was betrayed by the one Closest to him, Absalom, he went to a specific place, the Mount of Olives, weeping. When Jesus was betrayed by one closest to him, his disciple Judas, he went to the Mount of Olives, we are told in Matthew 26, and wept and prayed. And so now we're beginning to see how all of these events in the life of David line up and align exactly in the life of Jesus. Another example, a ninth point of correspondence. In Psalm 22, David says, He will declare the name of God to his brothers. Jesus says the exact same thing in Hebrews 2.12. A tenth point of correspondence. David has a, a great zeal for public corporate worship on the Lord's Day and for doing so with the people of God. He writes about this, a psalm about this in Psalm 69. Jesus has the same zeal. In fact, he has such zeal. In John chapter 2, if there's any deviation from biblical worship, he cleanses the temple in a holy and righteous anger. An 11th point of correspondence. David conquers a formidable foe, Goliath, by himself chopping off his head. Jesus conquers the greatest foe, that ancient serpent, Satan, by himself, fulfilling the first promise of the gospel from Genesis 3, crushing his head. And so when you think of Goliath, 
You should immediately escalate and think, well, this is great. This is a teenage boy killing Goliath with a slingshot. But this is nothing compared to his greater son who crushes the head of the serpent. A twelfth point of correspondence. David makes Jerusalem his capital. We're told in 2 Samuel 5 verse 9 that it begins to be called the city of David when he takes over the rule and reign. Well, Jerusalem was great. Far better is the new Jerusalem, a place where there is no tears, no pain, no crying, no death. And Jesus is at the center of it. A 13th point of correspondence. David was a beloved king. In fact, so beloved that people wrote songs about him. In 1 Samuel 16, we, we hear that Saul is enraged with jealousy when he hears what the ladies on the street are singing. They're singing, Saul is great. He's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And that enrages Saul because David is beloved. Principle of escalation. Not only is Jesus beloved, he's the eternally worshipped king of kings. The people of Israel in David's day may have written a song about him. We have thousands of songs about the greater David that we sing in his praise. A 14th point of correspondence, David was merciful to his enemies. In 2 Samuel 16, we have the occasion when Shimei is, is David is fleeing his throne and Shimei, this, this sort of the earnest tea bass of the Old Testament, if you don't know who that is, ask Bill Johnson. But um, Shimei starts throwing dust on David. What an act of disrespect that would usually get you killed to throw dust on the king. But David has mercy upon him. But that's nothing like the mercy Jesus has upon his enemies. What does he say while hanging from the cross, looking at his murderers? Father, forgive them. If David is merciful, Jesus is super merciful. A 15th point of correspondence. David was notable for his wisdom. Look at an example of this in 1 Samuel 18 next week when we look at David's son Solomon. And you're wondering, where did Solomon get all this wisdom? And my point is going to be next week is that he grew up in David's house. Wise father produces a wise son. So look what we're told about David. 1 Samuel 18 verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and he behaved wisely. And we read again in verse 14, the same chapter, David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. And what we'll see is the principle of escalation is not only is Jesus notable for his wisdom. He doesn't just have wisdom. He has omniscience. He has perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom. He always knows what is true and appropriate in every situation. The 16th point of correspondence. David was a lover of music. We're told in 2 Samuel 23, leading the whole nation in praise. He instituted singers and musicians in the house of the Lord. He penned most of the old covenant church's hymnal. But here's the glorious principle of escalation. We're told in Zephaniah 3 and then again in Hebrews that Jesus sings forever in the midst of his brethren. It will be his voice that you'll hear above all other voices through eternity in heaven. A 17th point of correspondence. David subdued all his enemies. 
If you start looking at who he subdued, you have to line them up. It's a long line. Philistines, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites. His kingdom, we are told in 2 Samuel 8, reached to the ends of the known earth. But that's nothing compared to the the military might and the prowess of the greater David. Because we are told in Philippians 2 that he will cause everyone that has ever lived, not just a few nations in the Middle East, but he will cause everyone that has ever lived to bow to him. As David is great, Jesus is infinitely greater as a ruler and a king. An 18th point of correspondence. David reigned in Hebron and Jerusalem for 40 years. It's an astounding term of rule for a whole generation in Hebron and Jerusalem. But the greater David reigns everywhere, and his kingdom will have no end, and he will reign forever and ever. And so when you see David at his very greatest, sitting on the throne, making wise decisions, conquering enemies, that's the faintest image of his greater son, the greater David. A 19th point of correspondence between David and the greater David. David is a prime example of how the Lord confounds the wise by not choosing the biggest, strongest, or handsomest, or oldest. Other men who were not firstborn but selected by the Lord, the Lord, by the way, delights in this, would include Jacob, who was chosen over his older brother Esau, Joseph over several of his older brothers, such as um, Ephraim and Manasseh, Moses, who was chosen over his older brother Aaron, and here God chooses the younger, David, over the older. And we see this principle of the Lord delighting to choose the obscure, the weak. And that principle is escalated in looking at the greater David. Because the son of David is the man from the nowhere village in Bethlehem. If Jesus were born today, we would say he were from Punkintown, South Carolina. It is God's delight to choose the weak and the insignificant in the world's eyes to confound the mighty so that no one can boast before him, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. A 20th point of correspondence. David is sent by his father to the battle. In 1 Samuel 17, David's father packs him up with bread and supplies to take to the battle. He doesn't intend for him to actually partake of the battle, but just to take food and drink and supplies to his older brothers. But he's sent by his father to the battle where he ends up slaying Goliath. But we are told of the greater battle, the greater David, that this David, the Lord Jesus Christ, was sent to the battle for us. We're told in 1 John 4, we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. A 21st point of correspondence. Are you beginning to maybe think there might be something to this picture of David as a type of Christ? In the the 21st point of correspondence, in the David and Goliath saga in 1 Samuel 17, the hero of the, the story triumphs after being repeatedly told he is weak. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 28, David's big brother tells him he's a pain. He's a little pesky little brother. In verse 33, King Saul says, you're still wet behind the ears. In verse 42, the Philistine giant Goliath tells him, you're puny. What a perfect typological representation of the son of David. 
When Jesus, the son of David, came, men say far worse things to him. They call him Beelzebub and a drunk and a fool, and they taunt him and say, If you're the son of God, come down off the cross. But what the world sees as foolish and inadequate, God uses to win the greatest victories. A 22nd point of correspondence. In 1 Samuel 18, David's popularity rises. And his own father-in-law and king, Saul, repeatedly tries to kill David out of jealousy. Even though David was God's anointed king and he knew he would one day sit on the throne, he had to endure the hatred of a petty, earthly, murderous King Saul, the son of David. Even though he was the anointed king of the universe, had to endure, even from his infancy, attempts on his life by King Herod. The 23rd point of correspondence. Just as David would not overthrow King Saul in revolt, he refused to be made king by his men, but he waited on God's timing. So the son of David, when over and over again his Jewish countrymen pled with him to overthrow either the Roman or the Jewish establishment or both, he refused to overthrow these establishments and let men place him on the throne. A 24th point of correspondence. When King Saul and the Philistines were chasing David year after year, and we see David moving from place to place, he is homeless. <clears throat> He's a perfect picture of the greater David, who would say in Matthew 8, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. A final point of correspondence, 25th. When David served in King Saul's court, Saul was often afflicted with a demonic spirit, we we're told in 1 Samuel 16. And when David would come and play upon his heart, probably singing psalms of his own composition, the demon would flee. Now get this picture, this final point of correspondence. Here is David who can dispel demons by just picking up his harp and singing spiritual songs to Saul. When the greater David came. Now remember, we're told that David could dispel a demon from Saul. But when the greater David comes, we hear these words in Luke 8. Jesus met a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. Demons, plural. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said to him, What have I to do with you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and it... It, he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. He broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the man said, Legion, because many demons, the technical text is hundreds, hundreds of demons had entered him. And we see Jesus casting out all of these demons. Whereas, whereas David was able by, by being the sweet singer of Israel and singing the psalm to, to Saul to cast out a demon. The principle of escalation holds. When the greater son of David comes, he drives out legions of demons. Now all of this you're thinking, why 
David is just nothing but a wonderful guy. And so anytime I study the life of David, I'm going to just say, whatever I see David doing, I'm sure that's what Jesus did. That would be very unwise. Because even with all of these points, 25 that I pointed out tonight, points of correspondence, up to this point we've spent our time reflecting on David's righteousness, his zeal, his faithfulness and covenant loyalty. But we must assert this. David is not the Messiah. And we could give dozens of reasons to make that claim. We could spend hours studying his sin, his failure, and his disappointments. But let me just point out three. The first is, David failed miserably in his duty. Do you remember the season we are told in 2 Samuel 11, that season of the year when kings went out to battle? David stayed home. And he sent his troops out. This led to his adultery and murder. The son of David, by correspondence, the son of David never failed in any commanded duty. So much so that he could say in John 8, I always do those things that are pleasing to my father. Anytime you see David failing, anytime you see him sinning, stop and say, he is not a type here. He is, he is not a picture of Christ in this. A second example, when we study the massive sins of David, his lust, his adultery, his murder, his cover-ups, and his lies. It should deeply sadden you. Over the last few months, the sad news has come, again, of leading evangelical leaders exposed in the sins of adultery and worse. It's been, again, fascinating to see the responses of God's people. The response should be, whenever a great man of God falls into sin, should be mourning and sadness knowing that this will bring deep reproach upon the gospel, the church, and even the Lord Jesus. And so it should result in an ever-increasing watchfulness over our own hearts. Don't try to cover up the sins of men when they do this, thereby proving to be a respecter of persons. And it's vital that we recognize that only the son of David was wholly harmless and undefiled. Don't the scriptures repeatedly tell us of his and his alone, of his sinlessness? This is so we will not place our trust and our hope in anyone else, no matter how impressive or attractive or powerful. And so when you think of David, he is never to be the object of your faith or your hope because he's not sinless. He's not a spotless lamb. One other point of discontinuity. Mr. Rios read it a moment ago in our New Testament reading in Acts chapter 2. And Peter grabs hold of this point because he knew this point with all these thousands of Jewish men surrounding who knew the life of David backwards and forwards. He knew this would be the point of discontinuity that would grab a hold of their hearts. And Peter says, uh, right down the hill, right over there, David, our father, died, was buried, and his tomb remains. But Jesus' tomb is empty. In that sense, it's not a principle of escalation. It's a principle of of discontinuity. David died and was buried and his bones are decaying. But Jesus' tomb is empty. He's the greater David. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, how we thank you for how you have embedded your word with all these glorious road signs pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that as we read our Bibles, especially our Old Testament, that we would have a joy and a zeal in doing so, in discovering all these glorious pictures of our Savior there for your people from hundreds and even thousands of years before the Incarnation that they might believe and look forward to a Savior. We pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.